time for Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, coming to you from the Artscape Theatre in Cape Town. I'm Cindy Moritz, and we're bringing you a crop of good books to enjoy over the festive season. If only we had more time, but here's a taste of what we love. Beverly Ruiz Muller delved into the world of spies in John Le Carre's latest Agent Running in the Field, as well as Jonathan Anser's Betrayal, The Secret Lives of Apartheid Spies. Melvin Minar rocked into December with Elton John's autobiography, Me. And Vanessa Levenstein spoke to Hedy Brower of Hollard Insurance about a project that uses social media to get parents and children reading together. Nicole Smith interviewed Dion Mayer about his latest book, The Last Hunt, and Beryl Eichenberger gives a thumbs up to Death on the Limpopo, A Tani Maria Mystery by Sally Andrew, as well as A Giver of Stars by Jojo Moyes for holiday entertainment. Solly Moeng, in his first review for Book Choice, gives us his thoughts on Crispian Olver's A City Divided. Leslie Beek recommends two delightful children's books, It's Jamela, The Complete Collection by Nikki Daly, and A Moon Girl Stole My Best Friend by Rebecca Patterson. And Philippa Schaefitz leaves us with a taste of A Happy Vegan Christmas by Caroline Johnson. So much to read, so little time. Beverly Ruiz Muller, tell us about the worlds of spies. Spying is one of the two oldest professions, and the master of spy stories is, of course, John le Carre, whose new novel is not only breathtakingly intricate, but also an openly enraged polemic against the worst of what the author sees of this current world. The vulgarity and sycophancy of the Trump presidency, the real threat of Putin's Russia, in many ways more dangerous than the old Cold War, and the disaster of Brexit. First, though, a local book about spying. Jonathan Anser's non-fiction tale of the secret lives of apartheid spies, Betrayal, is closer to home, documenting some of the better-known spooks that spied either for or against apartheid during the bad old days. Possibly the worst of the lot, depending on your viewpoint, was the unrepentant and repugnant Craig Williamson, who grew fat and prosperous by betraying his young student colleagues, and who later cold-bloodedly ordered the killing of across-border activists, his smirking defense being that we were at war. Anser begins his well-researched book, he interviewed many of those he writes about, with the anti-apartheid spy Dieter Gerhardt, who rose to the rank of Commodore in the South African Navy, and who in 1984 was imprisoned for spying for the Russians because of his hatred of apartheid. Or was that the only reason? Anser meets Mark Baer, and hears his confessional gives us a view of the rather ridiculous spy, Olivia Forsyth, and examines some of the terrible consequences of the many spies' actions and the difficulty in pinning down exactly what their personal motives really were, often depressingly banal, seeking attention, a sense of importance, and or money. There are names that are missing here, and I hope he will bring out a sequel to this important and interesting record of our murky past. 
John McCarray, whose real name is David Cornwall, was once a spy himself in Europe and is a fluent German speaker and scholar whose terrible conman of a dad lived high on the wealth of the widows and orphans he scammed. All of Le Carre's books are about the trail in some form or another, not least this latest agent running in the field. Matt is middle-aged and rather past his sell-by date, dreading being put out to pasture in a world that is no longer one he recognizes as the one he spied in and lost agents to. He pays badminton to keep fit, and it is this catalyst that plunges him and his human rights wife, Prue, loyal to the call, into a world that now feels mad, bad, and dangerous. The author has elsewhere paid himself as a European by choice, and this zeitgeist forms the backdrop of the convoluted plot. Into Nat's life comes Ed, young, idealistic, keen to flex his badminton skills, and as angry with the state of the world as can be. Meanwhile, Nat is asked to caretake a gone-to-seed outstation of his old spy bosses. The story, needless to say, unfolds in classic Le Carre style, with references to some of the great characters in his earlier best-known novels. At a critical point, Nat must make a difficult choice, but one that is inevitable if you are familiar with the author's previous work. I think particularly of The Russia House. Sometimes it may be better to betray than to be bad. Like all of Le Carre's books, this one deserves a very careful reread. At the age of 88, the grand old man of literature, for that is indeed what he is, retains the strength of his experience and insight. He is one of Britain's national treasures, though I can guarantee that after reading this book, Brexiteers will not agree. I bless my cotton socks that he's still writing. From high espionage to the high life, Melvin Minar, tell us about Elton John's autobiography, simply called Me. So, of course, the autobiography of a superstar is easy meat. The memoirs of the starry billboard name have built-in appeal to fans, not to mention a ready market out there. One can easily fall into the trap of the cynic for such ventures. I mean, after the glorious pleasures of the movie Rocket Man. The promise of a telltale all by Elton John is surely a shoo-in. But how good is it really? How, let us say, enlightening is the book about what we all simply accept as a remarkable pop culture character with eye-catching presence and ear-popping talent. The entertainment value of the Elton John autobiography, unabashedly labelled me, but poignantly indicative of a no-holds-bars self-search honest journey, is a given. Yes, especially after Rocketman, and if you turn up the 1973's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road on the soundbar, even more so. But on another level, let us say from a rather geeky perspective, the narrative of the Sir Elton Hercules John personality, who started out life in the London suburb of Pinner as Reginald Kenneth Dwight, is a story that could only have been framed in the era it happened. In other words, jolly and pleasurably interesting as it is to read, it is also a cultural document informative of a history when we all began to mark it in terms of decades. 
the things of the 60s turning into that of the 70s, baby boomers switching places, giving up for millennials into our current state of the post-noughts, rock and roll and all that jazz. It is in this context that for all my great enjoyment of the book as a fan who bought his first Elton John album on release in 1970, titled Elton John, it included the haunting hit, Your Song, I would have loved an index, and yes, believe it or not, footnotes, for more rewarding Googling, and just a reminder who all those boozo muzos were that made British pop so fabulous. Elton John could only have happened in our time of history, and there is much coincidence in the engaging story that is told with the excellent assistance of ghostwriter Alexis Petridis, an acclaimed music writer. Petritus probably made sure that the story moves at a pace, and also that the self-effacing humor kicks in well from time to time. Chance crops up at crucial times, perhaps the most significant when he is given an envelope of lyrics by a chap from upcountry after a studio recording failure in 1967. That was the start of the remarkable songwriting partnership with the unlikely upcountry fellow called Bernie Torpen. John writes in me the magic of the collaboration. I quote, Bernie writes the words, give them to me, I read them, play a chord, and something else takes over. Something comes through my fingers. The muse got luck. You can give it a name if you want, but I have no idea what it is. I know straight away where the medley is going to go. Another chance that reroutes what has become a superstar career is when in August 1970 he grudgingly agrees to take the new band to the USA and play the famous troubadour. This is where, wearing the strangely grunge and comic outfits he became famous for, his career takes off. A wonderful sub-theme of the book, if you will, is that of family and of course sexuality. John traces his life from childhood with an uptight father who divorced his adoring mother encouraging stepfather to his marriage to David Furnish and having two sons with open-hearted honesty. His support for AIDS charities is well known, as well as his outspokenness about LGBT issues. But is this new book, The Memoirs of a Very Public, Very Colorful Personality, only one for the Elton John fans, of which we number thousands? The quick answer is no. It is a delightful read for its humor, honesty, and yes, sweet gossip. Oh, it's a sin to catch a butterfly So I won't ever try to keep you in a jar I'll just let you fit and fly around I'll never tie you down Cause that's the way you are Butterfly, I'll set you free But once in a while Please fly home to me All the snow was melted from the ground When you first came around and held me it was spring April showers kept you here with me Was it your love for me or water on your wings? 
butterfly I'll set you free Once in a while Please make love to me Butterfly, so I'll just say goodbye and watch you fly away. But should you feel a bite of winter change, come to my windowsill, I'll never make you stay. Butterfly, I'll set you free, but once in a while. Please come home to me. That was Butterfly I'll Set You Free, sung by Cape Town crooner Harry Curtis. Vanessa Levenstein had an interesting chat with Heidi Brower of Hollard Insurance on an initiative to get parents and children reading using social media. There's a frightening statistic that 46.8% of parents and guardians never read books with their children. Harlard, in partnership with Kaha Yabana, have come up with a great idea to use social media to get parents and children reading books together. Joining us today on the phone from Johannesburg, we chat to Heidi Brower, CMO of Harlard Insurance, about Insta Storybooks. Welcome, Heidi. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you. What is an Insta Storybook? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting um, invention, actually, because uh, social media is blamed uh, for causing people to stop reading, Instagram in particular, because actually you don't even have to read anything on Instagram. It's full of pictures. Um, and our team has found a way of using social media and Instagram in particular to help people to read. And so what it is, it's a, a vehicle, a tool for creating stories in a way that anybody can contribute, anybody can be a writer, and in a way that anybody can download and print a book so that we can encourage reading. Now, when you say anyone can be a writer, can the writer be an adult or a child? Yes, the writer can be an adult or a child. Obviously, we do some quality control because we've uh, taken some advice in terms of um, how children consume and what's best the ways to get um, stories across so that we um, help with comprehension and language use and so on. But really, up till now, we've had um, almost 50 books, close to 50 books have been created, um, some of them by children in various languages, all with illustrations or using photography. And it's a a blend of um, contributions by people who really care. Some are professional writers. Some people have partnered up with an illustrator or with a writer um, just to have the opportunity to participate in Insta Storybooks. Is there a particular age gap for the children reading it? Obviously a two-year-old and a seven-year-old would consume material differently. Yes, so this is for definitely for younger kids. I mean, the stats that we have, you know, you were talking about parents and caregivers not reading to children. I mean, there's a, a survey that President Ramaphosa referenced in his State of the Nation address that says almost 8 out of 10 South African grade 4 children 
can't read for meaning in any language. And so comprehension and um, so on, the ability to, to and I'm no guru, but that ability to sit and read something to a child so that they can start uh, to be able to work on comprehension um, is so important. Um, our books are for the younger kids, for say age sort of three to seven, um, which is the foundational um, phase. It's uh, the foundation um, for the children. That's great. And they say you learn to read and then read to learn. So this just ties in perfectly with that. Yeah, um, with it's that terrific. Place. I mean, and they, these tiny little things, that they, they, they print it on an A4. Um, so any printer, anybody can go on to the Insta Storybook site, print any number of the 40-something books, almost 50 books, print them on a normal printer, and there's instructions. You just trim the one side, trim the other, and you fold it along the guide it um, folds, and you've got a little a little book in your hand. And, you know, when we went to go and share it for the first time um, with some of the children at uh, one of our early childhood development partner centers, um, Kajoyabana centers, I mean, the kids, you'd swear we'd given them the most incredible uh, gift yeah. of and they're these tiny little books just folded A4 pieces of paper and they made such a difference I urge our listeners to print a book because you actually want to see this little book printed out and it fits so perfectly into a little hand it's a complete treasure so again I want to submit a book or if I want to download a book your website is the best place is to go onto Instagram onto our storybooks um, page you can go onto the website. You just got to do a lot of forward slashes. It's our Hollard website, hollard.co.za, and then Better Futures because it's part of a Better Futures campaign that we've been running for some years. And then Insta Storybooks. So Hollard, Better Futures, Insta Storybooks, and you'll be able to find the storybooks and instructions on how to create your own books. Um, we've already had 87,000 page views, which is fantastic, and uh, downloaded. Hundreds of books, some of them we've printed for the kids actually ourselves so that we can get them more quickly into their little hands. And as you yourself mentioned, this really is a prime example of social media used for social good. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Wishing you all the best for the future and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Vanessa. Get, Get writing, people, and print books. You never know who wants to read one. They're wonderful. Nicole Smith had the good fortune to speak with Dion Mayer about his latest release, The Last Hunt. The Last Hunt is acclaimed South African crime writer Dion Mayer's latest novel, gripping from start to finish. The story features Detective Benny Chrysal, who has featured in no less than five other Dion Mayer's bestsellers. We are thrilled to have Dion Mayer himself in studio with us today. Welcome, Dion, and what a fantastic read The Last Hunt is. An absolute page-turning thriller filled with suspense, intrigue, familiar locations, current political events even, and characters that really come alive for the reader. So how did the story where you are bringing back one of your much-loved characters come to be? Well, it's tough to answer that question without giving any spoilers. But let me just say that my huge frustration with the uh, previous president and all the corruption in the country inspired most of the story. Yes, I see that's a, a very, very prominent context to how the story unfolds. And the story unfolds in two locations, so Cape Town, Western Cape and France. So what was your inspiration for using these two settings for the story? 
Well, I usually write about Cape Town. That's where Benny Grisel is based as a Hawks detective. But we fell in love with Bordeaux, especially Paris, obviously, but Bordeaux specifically about a decade ago. And we spent a lot of time, Marianne and my wife, we spent a lot of time there. You know, as you love a place and as, as you develop a passion for a, a place, then there's the urge to write about it. And uh, I also brought back one of my other characters, and I'm not going to say who because that would be a huge spoiler. And I always... Having written about him, I don't know, a decade ago, he was always in the back of my mind, where would he have gone? And uh, as I fell in love with Bordeaux, I thought this would be a perfect place for him. So the story sort of happened and dovetailed quite beautifully once I started developing the story. Fantastic. I really like the way the, you know, the, the, the plot jumps from one place to the other. It really helped building the, the suspense for the reader. You have a knack for really capturing everyday South Africans in your characters. Do you do any specific research when you're developing your characters? Thank you. I do research all the time, you know, just listening when I'm in the supermarket, listening to conversations, trying to capture the rhythms of the way that people speak, of South Africans of all cultures and ethnic groups and all language groups. I'm constantly listening. I love asking people questions. If I see something interesting or hear something interesting, I will sometimes intrude and say, you know, can I ask you a few questions? So research is a constant process for me. So you have to almost be a detective before you start writing the story. Yeah, I think more of a voyeur. You know, I think the all authors are voyeurs. We watch, and that is why it's so great to sit in a restaurant or walk in a supermarket or just on the street. Today, the Springboks are taking the World Cup through Cape Town, and we spent about 10 minutes on the pavement. And I just listen to people, and I watch people, because that's how you collect all these little tidbits that you might use in a book later on. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, without giving too much away, I have to ask you about Rovos Rail. Right. This is the luxury train that becomes a crime scene. You give the reader a wonderful insight into the railway company. What uh, research did you undertake that or take us through that process? Well, I, you know, when I started doing the research, when I started planning the book, I wanted to have it happen on a train. Marianne and I absolutely adore traveling by train. And South Africa has some very interesting trains. And my initial idea was to have a different train. And then I have a very good friend and colleague, Quibus van der Berg, who works in the tourism industry, and he said, but have you had a look at Rovos Rail? I said, no, I haven't. And he said, well, I'll get you an invitation. And Rovos Rail was kind enough to uh, have us on the train from Cape Town to Pretoria. It was an incredible experience that I can highly recommend. And that was my research. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful, special train to have a crime scene on. But I had to work on the train too. I had to make sure that can the windows open to throw a body out and all sorts of things. So it was a really fun experience. Fantastic. Sounds very interesting. And perks of the job, of course. Absolutely. Now, the book is called The Last Hunt. And I link that to the character of Ex assassin Daniel Darrett. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He's required to perform one last hit, but I do wonder if you were hinting at it being Benny Crystal's last case. What's the future for the star detective? It's funny. I mean, I've, I've been receiving on social media several questions in that regard. Is this Benny's last hunt? And no, it isn't. It's a reference to 
some of my previous titles and again I don't want to say too much but uh, no this is definitely not Benny's Last Hunt I am at the moment working on a new Benny Grisel novel and I I think Benny will still be with us for quite some time to come that's great news and Dion you have your bestseller trackers now screening as a mini series on Mnet do you see yourself moving more into television and film writing what are some of your passion projects for the near future I'm a novelist at heart, and I, I think that is what I will always do. I love being involved in adapting my work for, for television. I, I've seen other people do it, and I wasn't always extremely happy, so I love being involved just to make sure that the TV adaptation works as a, as a TV series. You know, the great thing about making something for the screen is that it's a very collaborative process. You work with a lot of very creative people, while writing a novel is a very lonely job. So I enjoy that part of it too, but I will never stop writing novels. Well, we are absolutely thrilled to hear that, and I urge all our listeners to read the latest book from Dion Mayer, The Last Hunt. Thank you so much for joining us here in studio, Dion. Thanks for having me. If you're simply dying to read Dion Mayer's The Last Hunt, you're in luck, as we have one copy to give away. Tell us, what is the name of Mayer's beloved captain in his novels? Benny Chrysal or Benjamin Button? Call us on 021-401-1013 with your answer. The winner will be contacted straight after the show, so don't delay and get calling now. The number again, 021-401-1013. FMR presents Concert Date at 8, a series of delayed broadcasts from the Cape Town City Hall. On Thursday, 5th December, finish Splendor. Maestro Bernard Gürler conducts Yuri Revish in Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto. Also on the program, Peter Louis van Dijk's About Nothing and Sibelius's Symphony No. 2 in D minor. FMR's Concert Date at 8 is proudly sponsored by Galinda Moser of Remax Living. It's nearer than you think but feels like another world. Welcome to St. James, home to three luxury retreats. St. James guest houses are the epitome of deluxe design with a premium personal touch. Overlooking the sea, close to a tidal pool, the guest houses all have unique offerings. Choose from the grandeur of the manor, the family feel of Seaforth House, or the modern aesthetic of the homestead. Visit stjamesguesthouses.com. Between Musenberg and Cork Bay, you'll find St. James guest houses and discover the most elegant retreats on the False Bay Coast. The glamorously gorgeous Sterling EQ. The scurrile of the pipes with the Cape Town Highlanders. A Mambush Marimba Band. The Cape Town Male Voice Choir. Cape Town Concert Brass. And many more amazing performers all come together to make carols at Kirstenbosch a roaring success every year. Join me, Waldo Buckle. And me, Nick Plummer, on the lawns at Kirstenbosch. As we start your festive season with a Cape Town family tradition like no other. Carols at Kirstenbosch from Thursday the 12th to Sunday the 15th of December with your host. Nick Plummer and Waldo Buckle. Book at web tickets. 70% of the body's immune system dwells in the digestive tract. So, isn't it time to listen to your gut? Totally Wild brings you Aloe 24-7 juices, which are made from organic Cape Aloe plants. Available in three delicious flavors, the naturally thick juice lines the digestive tract, soothing irritated areas and boosting the immune system. Look after your health by feeding your gut good bacteria. Aloe 24-7 juices are available from Dischem, Wellness Warehouse, Faithful to Nature, or visit aloe247.co.za. 
In the morning of my life I shall look to the sunrise At a moment in my life when the world is new And the blessing I shall ask is that God will grant me The World with Love was sung by Min Shaw. Beryl Eichenberger enjoyed two light holiday reads, Death on the Limpopo by Sally Andrew and The Giver of Stars by Jojo Moyes. With holidays coming up, I'm sure you're looking for some reading matter. So here's a couple that I enjoyed on a recent trip away. Death on the Limpopo, a Tani Maria mystery by Sally Andrew. Well, here's everybody's favourite Karoo Agony aunt and cook of note who's back in another murder mystery. Tani Maria, you had me at the first page. Set in the small Karoo town of Ladysmith, it brings some wonderful new characters and a journey fraught with adventure and baggage from the past. And of course, this is the third in the series. All of these books have taken readers in five continents by storm. So if you haven't read any, then pick this one up and prepare for a jam-packed journey across terrain that will be familiar to many. Tani Maria, her beau Henk and the team from the local newspaper embark on a rollicking journey that only requires a tin of buttermilk rusks to chew through as you turn the pages. And the recipe is at the back. So what more could you want? Love, murder and some surprising revelations romp through this story. Andrew introduces us to the tall dark stranger, Zabanguni Kani, who arrives with a flourish on a Ducati motorbike. A journalist whose political exposés have put her in mortal danger, 
she seeks refuge with Tani Maria and then takes her on a journey to the country's northern parts where a past that Maria has tried to forget is finally unraveled with very surprising consequences. Andrew's special brand of writing conjures up a wonderful picture of a Karoo road trip, the emotions that run with family connections and how food can be a saviour in all situations. This is a story that is deliciously addictive and you'll be hooked from the start. And of course the bonus is recipes at the back of the book. The next book that I enjoyed was The Giver of Stars by Jojo Moyes. This author never disappoints. Probably best known for Me Before You and the subsequent sequels, Jojo Moyes' skill lies in creating stories that are so real you live with the characters. This is no formulaic writing. Her tales are sometimes based on truth, as this one is. Then she has her own magical touch to take you on a page-turning journey. And the journey in The Giver of Stars is one of hardship, tough riding and many challenges. A story that will grab everyone who loves books and the power that reading brings. Set in East Kentucky in the late 1930s, the story revolves around a group of women led by the unconventional Marjorie O'Hare, who, as the horseback librarians, are bringing the joy of books and reading to the poorer rural community living above the town of the dyed-in-the-wool inhabitants of Baileyville. Into this town comes the Englishwoman Alice, who, looking for an escape from her stifled life in England, has married the wealthy Bennett van Cleve, not a very clever move, in fact, and his overbearing and ruthless mining magnate father has the town and his son, and tries to have his daughter-in-law, in his grasp. Always restless and never quite fitting in, Alice joins the group of women as a horseback librarian and finds a passion for the cause, the people, and undying friendships that change her life. This is a book with a happy ending, but not before the group have to face the many challenges of small-town mentality and past feuds that need to be reconciled. Wonderfully alive, the characters are real and well-crafted. Moyes sets her scene with clarity, and the words roll over you in an unforgettable story that will have you laughing and crying. Never boring, her writing is an utter delight. Sally Moeng joins the team on Book Choice this month, and his first review is of Crispian Oliver's A City Divided, about which he can tell us a great deal. A House Divided by Crispian Oliver is a book that I recommend strongly for anyone who wants to understand why politicians do what they do in South Africa. What I like about it is that it doesn't just tell you the stories and anecdotes of stuff that happened around the country or in different cities. It also tells you the structural issues, the systemic issues that enable people to behave as they do. And one of the key issues is political party funding. I think a lot of times we fail to understand that political party funding is a major problem in South Africa and it drives people, political parties and individual politicians, to divert funds or to get involved in business uh, relationships, often on behalf of cities around the country, that would benefit them individually or their political parties financially. And in the process, a lot of administrative 
rules and regulations get distorted and undermined by that behavior. So I need to read a, an excerpt in the book that clearly, in my view, gives a really good idea about what this book is about and what is at stake. So it goes this way. Every city administration faces difficult choices, having to strike an often uneasy balance between addressing monumental housing backlogs as quickly as possible, encouraging economic activity and private investments, and looking after the city's purse, while at the same time protecting the environment, preserving public spaces, looking after cultural and historical heritage, and promoting spatial and socio-economic integration. These often conflicting considerations, supported by different constituencies, are tricky to reconcile. No development project can just satisfy all constituencies and the interests they represent, and most proposals are likely to unleash fierce opposition. So in his previous book, Christian Olver you know, explained to us what happened in how the city of Port Elizabeth was stolen by political interests. In this book, he looks at the city of Cape Town. And more interestingly, I think a lot of people would want to know what really happened between Patricia Delisle and the DA and the whole issue of the centralization of power in the office of the mayor and why she was driven to do that. I think a lot of people have fallen for the easy description of what happened as being a race battle between Patricia DeLille and the DA, you know, you know, they all many people like to look at what happened to Lindiwe Mabuso before her and other so-called black leaders in the DA who were ousted unceremoniously. But actually, one needs to look at the deeper issues that really happened here. And one of the key players in the provincial, in the Western Cape, is the role that is played by property developers or the interest of property developers and party political funding. There is very widespread suspicion that some of the projects that they get that they manage to push do so you know at the expense of the city or the administrations being being pushed aside or being forced to do things that they would normally not approve because processes do not allow them to do those things and there's also suspicion that you know these things happen because politicians and political parties have to make money and some of this money comes from you know nudging city administrators to approve certain deals ahead of others because some of those things might be coming from people who fund the political parties. So it's a very interesting book to read because it allows you not only to see what people do but what systemic issues are at play that enable them to do the things they do. It's a very easy read. At 297 pages, this is a truly easy read for anyone who wants to understand the treacherous confluence of political interests at city administration and private sector interests. Thank you. That sounds interesting. And let me correct myself. It's, the book is called A House Divided, Not a City Divided by Crispian Olver. If you're keen to win a copy of Dion Mayer's The Last Hunt, don't forget to call us on 021-401-1013 with your answer to the simple question. What is the name of Mayer's beloved captain in his novels, Benny Chrysal or Benjamin Button? Remember, the winner will be contacted right after the show, so don't delay. Get calling now. The number again is 
love changes everything Hands and faces, earth and sky Love, love changes everything How you live and how you die Love can make the summer fly Oh well Changes everything. Now I tremble at your name. Love Changes Everything, sung by Herr Kosten. Leslie Beek brings us news of two lively and fun children's books. It's Jamela, The Complete Collection by Nikki Daly, and A Moon Girl Stole My Best Friend by Rebecca Patterson. Holiday reading ought to be delightful. It ought to be entertaining, 
most of all, it ought to be fun. I have two books beside me that have both of all of those things and more. The Jamela books, written and illustrated by Nikki Daly, are long-term favorites with children and their parents and teachers and other dedicated readers aloud who should also get amusement from the books they share. In fact, without us realizing it, Jamela has been enchanting us for 20 years. When did that happen? And Tafelberg have released a complete edition of all five books in a hardback volume, useful to replace those much-worn paperback copies that have been read a hundred times. The charm of Janella is that she's such a real and believable little girl, naughty and nice in just the right proportions, longing for pretty shoes and dresses, and getting up to mischief in pursuit of them, loving and much loved by her mamma and her gogo, interacting with a changing cast of characters, from the wise men in the nativity play in the Mandela shirt to Miss Bambi Shaka Shaka having her hair styled at Aunt Beauty's salon. There is a smile on every page, one of nostalgia, sympathy, and above all, gentleness. In complete contrast is another book I really enjoyed. I didn't expect to, with a title like A Woman Girl Stole My Best Friend. There's not high expectation of success, Many have tried and many have failed to write this kind of fantasy and make it as real as, well, as real as Jamila. This one gets it right, faultlessly maintaining the 2099 world where Lila has a robo-cat for a pet, is taken to school by her mom in a sky car, and where birthday presents could be flying sweets or penguin stickers that swarm all over the walls. Bianca had been planning her birthday since June, at a sleepover at mine in the summer holidays, we were floating about my room in the float and sleep and eating jellyfish crispies, and I jumped from my float and sleep onto hers and threatened to tick her off if she didn't tell me every detail. What makes it work is the entirely normal story that runs parallel with the sci-fi. The story of sub-teen girls anywhere, the jostling for best friend status, the jealousy when a new girl comes, especially one from the moon colony, who has the advantage of all the latest in zooty makeup, shiny hair, and a very superior opinion of herself. Against the futuristic technology is a mom who doesn't like reversing. Okay, so it is a flying car, but still, a younger brother who is predictably, well, young, and a heroic ending that includes a veteran space pilot who happens to be an elderly lady with kittens in her hair. Real ones. I love this book. It's Janella is written and illustrated by Nikki Daly and published by Tafelberg in 2019. A Moon Girl Stole My Best Friend is written and illustrated by Rebecca Patterson and published by Anderson Press also in 2019. Philippa Schaefitz rounds things off with a delicious take on Christmas. A Happy Vegan Christmas by Caroline Johnson. Happy Vegan Christmas by Caroline Johnson, published by Pavilion. An appropriate book to review for December, although it is intended to inspire a festive feast in the cold north. A lovely book to look at. It's well designed in understated Scandinavian style. For the serious vegan, there is much to be gleaned from this cookbook. There is a valuable section on stocking up the larder as the author writes that even though it's possible to make plant-based versions of all traditional favorites, there may be gaps to fill with new ingredients. 
She lists some basic ingredients which help her organize everyday meals and special ones fairly simply and easily. Lentils, different kinds, an assortment of beans. The author uses quinoa as a base for everything, from patties to pastry cases, in salads, stews and porridge as an alternative to rice. Nuts are used more creatively than in meat-based dishes. Cashew nuts are especially suitable for making into cheese, yogurt, cream cheese, frostings, custard, mayonnaise, sour cream, and cheesecake. Like nuts, seeds are a great source of good fats and protein. She uses sunflower seeds the most. In her recipe for vegan meatballs, she uses sunflower seeds. Flowers made from chia seeds and psyllium husk are used instead of eggs in baking to bind the dough. Superfoods refer to ingredients that are particularly nutritious. Blueberries and cranberries, fresh or dried. Beetroot and kale, fresh or frozen. For sweeteners, Caroline likes coconut sugar, dates and date syrup, agave and maple syrup. Spelt flour is a favorite for baking bread. She uses gluten-free cornmeal for cornbread and tortillas. Chickpea flour, also gluten-free, plus rich in protein, is used in her vegetable burgers. Whole hulled buckwheat is used for making porridge. Olive and canola oils are favored, as well as coconut oil, both warm and the cold-pressed one, which has a mild coconut flavor. There's a great section on baking, an enticing collection of drinks. In order to make a vegan meal delicious and satisfying, Caroline stresses it must include a range of different textures, and it must have a contrast between the five basic tastes, salty, sweet, sour, bitter, and umami. She includes an interesting assortment of recipes for her Christmas buffet. Sticky buffalo cauliflower, garam masala bhajis, a bright beetroot hummus holiday bowl, creamed kale in potato pastry, radicchio canopies with cashew cheese salad. There are good ideas for Danish open sandwiches. Interspersed throughout the book are charming craft suggestions. The author became well-known in 2012 when her vegetarian food blog, The Green Pantry, was named Sweden's best food blog. The first cookbook was published in 2014. This cookbook was first published in Sweden 2017 and this year in the UK. Can never be done 
to listen to Circle of Life sung by Andre Schwartz. We have a winner in our competition. Melville Silk, you will receive your copy of Dion Mayer's The Last Hunt in time for the holidays. That's all we have for you this festive month. And if you missed all or part of the show or want a reminder of the books we've reviewed, go to our website, fmr.co.za, where we post the Book Choice podcast every month. Thanks to Chekhovatso Modika for working the desk and Rick Everett for the musical interludes. Matinee is up next with Brendan Van Rain after the news, and we're leaving you with the sounds of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, played by Mike Lotz. Happy holidays. FMR 101.3